You're listening to the sermon podcast of North Valley Baptist Church. This week's message is preached by Pastor Scott McGrady. Well, if you would take your Bibles and, yes, turn to 1 Thessalonians, but maybe kind of hold your spot there and then turn to Acts 17. So turn to 1 Thessalonians and then turn to Acts 17. As we begin a new series here, we begin this series in 1st, well, it's technically 1st and 2nd Thessalonians that this series is going to go through. But we're going to start with going through, obviously, 1st Thessalonians. And that's going to carry us through, if I remember correctly, that should carry us through the Sunday before Thanksgiving. And then, so the Sunday after that, maybe we'll have a specific Thanksgiving message, and then we'll move into the Christmas season. And then after that, Lord willing, in the new year, we will come then and tackle Second Thessalonians. And so that's the game plan for right now, uh, as we begin this series here. This series being the letters to a faithful church. Now, as we look at this series, as we turn here to 1 Thessalonians, we turn to one of Paul's earliest letters, probably one of his first two, uh, at least of the ones that we have as Scripture in the Bible. Galatians, maybe his first one, maybe this is his second one. But it's, it's one of the first two. As we look at this letter written to the church in the city of Thessalonica, that Greek city. And on that city, uh, John MacArthur said this. He said, This city became the capital of Macedonia in about 168 BC and enjoyed the status of a free city, which was ruled by its citizenry under the Roman Empire because it was, a, because it was located on the main east-west highway via Ignatia. Thessalonica served as the hub of political and commercial activity in Macedonia and became known as the mother of all Macedonia. The population in Paul's day reached 200,000. All right, so that's the city in which this church that Paul was writing to was located uh, in there in Thessalonica. Now, the church here, when Paul was writing to it, it was, it was quite the young church. A church that had been facing also persecution pretty much from its start. And we see here, and we'll turn to First Thessalonians, you'll see as Paul addresses the city that it's from him, or the church, from him, from Silvanus or Silas, and from Timothy. And Silas and Timothy, they were co-workers in the gospel with Paul, and they traveled with Paul during his second missionary journey. And it was during that second missionary journey that Paul planted this church. And so we see there in Acts 17, as we read of Paul and Silas there in Thessalonica. And due to the persecution that they faced in preaching the gospel there, and, and people coming to faith in Christ there, uh, this persecution really forced Paul and Silas out to Berea to have to leave the city. And then Paul went to Athens and then to Corinth, where he spent 18 months in Corinth. And eventually there in Corinth, Silas and Timothy would meet up again with Paul. 
and Timothy, he met up with Paul having come from Thessalonica, as we'll see in chapter 3 here in 1 Thessalonians. And we read of Paul in Corinth there in Acts 18. And in 18, verse 12, it says that Gallio was the proconsul of Achaia. He became the proconsul of Achaia at that time. And there's an inscription in the temple of Apollos near Delphi, near Corinth, that reads that Gallio became the proconsul from 51 to 52 AD. And so Paul. He likely would have arrived in Corinth early in the year of 50 A.D. And it would seem that he wrote 1 Thessalonians soon after his arrival there in Corinth. Most date this book in the early 50s, and there can be an argument made that Paul wrote this letter in 50 or 51 A.D. So again, we, we read of Paul's arrival there in Thessalonica in Acts 17. And so let's, let's turn there now and, and read Acts 17, verses 1 through 4. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So Paul and Silas, they come to Thessalonica in a a three-part journey where they stopped in Amphipolis and Apollonia. And the apostle Paul and Silas made this 100-mile journey from Philippi to Thessalonica, leaving Philippi after having been arrested and beaten there. And and as Paul gets to Thessalonica, as was his custom, he, he went to the synagogue. And we read that he reasoned there on three Sabbath days. Now, that doesn't mean that he was only there for three Sabbath days. Some argue we'll see in Acts he's only there for three or four weeks. But really, Luke, who wrote Acts, is just saying what he did on three Sabbath days. Actually, it seems likely that he was probably there for longer than that, at least two months or more, a few months. Because as we read in 1 Thessalonians, he and Silas... They both got jobs, and they worked to support their ministry there in Thessalonica. And they did it long enough, at least, to show themselves as an example to the Thessalonians of good work ethic. And there's other clues as well that would indicate that they were there longer than just three or four weeks. But we see here in verse 2 that Paul, he goes and he reasons with the Jews from the Scriptures... Again, verse 3 says, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Man, what an important message that was and is for the Jews. That it was necessary for the Christ to die and rise again, and that Jesus is that Christ. It was such an important message uh, because the Jewish understanding and the traditions they had of Messiah, of the Christ, was not one of a Christ that would die. And so Paul reasoned, or, or he had a discussion with them, possibly some questions that were asked, and there were some back and forth. 
as we read that he explained and was proving from the Old Testament, from the Jewish scriptures, that Messiah had to suffer and had to rise from the dead. And we see that there was this persuasion that some joined Paul and Silas. And not only from the Jews, but they're also converts from devout and God-fearing Greeks. And among them were some prominent women. And so we have these first converts there in the city, and so therefore the start of a church. And we see that in that second missionary journey, there had not been such a response. Even as Paul moves on uh, to Berea and to Athens and Corinth, there was not a response in those cities like there was here in Thessalonica to the gospel. And so we'll keep reading here. Uh, In chapter 17, verses 5 through 9, it says, But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in uproar, and attacked the house of Jason. Uh, Apparently, Jason took Paul and Silas in, and they were staying there in his house uh, while they ministered there in Thessalonica. And so they attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So, again, there was persecution almost from the start of this church here in Thessalonica. And at this time, too, you can turn back to 1 Thessalonians as well. Again, this church was one that knew persecution and knew it well. And really, the world will always stand in opposition to the church. We as a church in 21st century America, if we're honest, we've really been sitting easy and at peace for an unprecedented long time. But there has been those who have been sounding the alarms the past few years of persecution being in the horizon. And as time has gone on, more and more, I think they're correct. I think they're right. That our time of sitting free from persecution as the church in America is running out and has already been getting harder. And if we face persecution, where we have, again, relatively been enjoying freedom to preach the gospel and to practice our faith without opposition... But if persecution comes, will we stand? Will we continue standing under it? I think it's a fair question to ask to believers whose coming to faith uh, did not face opposition from the world. Now, I know that some of you have had opposition to, for example, family members. That there were family members that were not happy that you came to faith in Christ. And in no way am I discounting the difficulty and the struggle that 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 was for you. But some of us didn't have that struggle. Some of us didn't have opposition even from our families. And, And which of us had opposition from the government in coming to faith in Christ? Which of us risked our our freedom and even our lives in proclaiming faith in Christ? 
What will happen to us as a church if persecution comes? How will we stand? What will prepare us for it? The church in Thessalonica, they faced persecution. They suffered. And we're going to see how they stood. When Paul and Silas had to leave Thessalonica, it was because of the persecution, and the believers sent them away under the cover of night to Berea. And so Paul went and ministered there in Berea, but it didn't take long for some of those Jewish agitators to come from Thessalonica down to Berea and start causing problems for Paul there. And so though Silas and Timothy were able to stay there in Berea for a little while, Paul went on to Athens, and then again on to Corinth. And there in Corinth, Paul and Silas, or Timothy and Silas, were able to meet up with Paul again. But in that time when he had to leave Thessalonica, Paul felt his departure was premature, at least probably in the sense that the intended work or the extent of that work that he wanted to do was unfinished. There was still more he wanted to say and spend time with the new believers there. And so if you would look to chapter 2 there in 1 Thessalonians, chapter 2, and read with me verses 17 to 18. Chapter 2, verses 17 to 18. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we want to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. And so they had to leave, torn away, Paul felt. And he wanted to go back, but again, he said, Satan hindered them. But it was the suffering, which was the overflow of the suffering that Paul faced there in Thessalonica. It was the suffering that the Thessalonians then faced that was the very thing that proved their faith. The persecution that tore Paul away from them. The persecution that made him concerned about their perseverance and their faith. And so if you would then turn to chapter 3 as well. Chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. Because of this concern, we read there, it says, For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. Paul was afraid of how they would fare up under the persecution, and so he had to send Timothy to them. And so Timothy goes. And Timothy comes back to Paul, and he comes back with a good report about the Thessalonian church. He comes back and gives Paul good news. And it's in hearing this good news about the Thessalonians that Paul was motivated to write this letter. And so if we look at the timeline in all of this, and Paul leaving Thessalonica, going to Berea, going to Athens, going to Corinth... In writing this letter, it may have been four or six months after he left Thessalonica. So in some sense, not really a very long time. And so then, as, as we go through 1 Thessalonians, I want us to think about a few things. And so when, as we start, I want us to think about Is there someone that we look up to? 
Is there someone that is a hero to us? Don't say Batman and Spider-Man. That, no. I mean, if you're going to, Batman and Spider-Man are the two that you should say, but... No, I'm talking about someone who is someone we can look up to and say, listen, I want to be like them. That we look and we admire their walk with the Lord, their their leadership, the things that they do, their, their humility. And we say, listen, they're an example for me to follow. They're, they're someone who encourages me in my walk with the Lord as I see them walk with the Lord. As I see their service to others. As I see their love for his word and love for his church. As I see the work of God in them. And there's someone that encourages me that I want to be like. They're, in a sense, then my hero. Do we have someone like that? Someone that, as far as we can see, is, is so far beyond us in our walk with Christ that it, it pushes us in our walk with Christ. And yet, at the same time, it's someone who's so humble that they themselves still know that they, they haven't arrived yet. That they still have to grow themselves. And in that humility, you know, they, they, they can hear correction. They can hear and they, they, they invite it because they know they still need to grow. And so they encourage us to know we still need to grow. You know, there's times where someone may say with their mouth, you know, of course I haven't arrived. I'm, but then in their attitude towards others and the way they carry themselves, they say, well, do you really, do we really know? We... No, but when we can see the humility just pours out of them because they are someone who walks with the Lord. And so they encourage us. Do, do we have people like that? Do we know people like that? You know, as we talk about and we look at First Thessalonians, and we look at this church, I want us to ask, are, are we as North Valley, are we a church like that? Like the Thessalonian church? There's so much that we see about them that was so right and so good and so true. This good news that Paul got, would someone deliver good news about North Valley Baptist Church? We see that this good news he got was good news, not perfect news. And that, that's good news for us, because as I'm asking, are, are we like them? Are we like the Thessalonian church? To know that Timothy brought good news, not perfect news, is helpful to us, because he didn't bring perfect news because clearly they were not a perfect church. And so when asking, are we like the Thessalonian church, I'm not asking, are we a perfect church? And that's good, because guess what? Uh, we're not. And why aren't we a perfect church? Because I'm here, and you're here. And there's not one person in this room that's perfect. Not one person in this room that's made it. This church is made up of imperfect people, and so it's an imperfect church. We all have room to grow. I, I, I love what Charles Spurgeon said. He said, if I had never found a church till I had found one that was perfect, I should never have joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, if I had found one, I should have spoiled it, for it would not have been a perfect church after I had become a member of it. Still, imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth to us. 
Can we say that? Can we say that about North Valley? Man, as imperfect as North Valley is, this is the dearest place to us, where I gather with my brothers and sisters in Christ, where they encourage me and I can encourage them, and, and we gather together and we love each other and we serve each other. We worship the Lord together. We're united together. No, we're not perfect, but man, this is the place to be. And I don't want to say too much about this for a couple of reasons. Run right now is not the time I plan to say. But the thing is, too, you know, I've had concerns with streaming the service and those things of the temptation that there could be and thinking, hey, I'm good because, you know, at least I'm watching. But that's not being together. Man, if this is the dearest place to us, we want to be here together, face-to-face, truly being with one another. I mean, even Paul, as he talked about the Thessalonians, and he had to be torn from them. You know, he's torn from them in person, but not in heart. But again, even though his heart was there with them, it still didn't beat being with them face-to-face. And, and when we, this is the dearest place for us. It doesn't beat being face-to-face together. Man, we should want to gather. Gather because our Lord commands us to gather. And gather because we love each other. We want to be together. We want to have that encouragement and grow together and worship together. And so, no, we're not a perfect church. And the church in Thessalonica was not a perfect church. But Paul addresses this young church. Paul was encouraged, as we see in chapter 3, verse 6, encouraged being brought good news about their faith and love. And a matter of fact, we see that this was a church that was known for their faith. They were known for it. Look at chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 7 and 8. Chapter 1, verse 7 and 8. And what do we read there? It says so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. We don't need to tell anybody about your faith. They already know. They, they know your reputation. They know what you're all about. They, they know. And so again, I ask, are we a church like that? Can it be said of the membership of North Valley Baptist Church that because of our faith, we are an example to the believers in our area? Can it be said that we are examples as we are imitators of the apostles and of Jesus? That the gospel goes out from us wherever we go. That we take it with us wherever we go. People hear the gospel because of North Valley Baptist Church. Can that be said of us? Are we known for our faith? And if not, why not? Why aren't we known? In the face of suffering, are we known for our faith? If we do suffer, will we be known for our faith? If not, why not? These are questions we need to answer. Again, we know we're not a perfect church, but are we a church that wants to grow? Are we a church that wants to follow the example of the apostles, to follow and imitate Christ? Do we want to grow? 
being willing to recognize where we fall short? Do we want to search the scriptures to take in the plain reading of God's word? Do we want to hear and read the word of God preserved for us as we hear the authorities of the apostles as they give us God's word? And that when we can recognize that there's an area of our lives that stands in opposition to God's word, that it's not God's word that needs to change. It's us that needs to change. And so will we submit ourselves to that? Again, Timothy brought good news about this church. But that doesn't mean that there weren't certain areas in the church that needed to be addressed. And there weren't misconceptions that needed to be clarified. And so Paul addresses those issues. We see he addresses morality there in the church. And it's interesting, as we'll come to that, that, that even in the midst of suffering, it was God's will and is God's will for his people to be holy. Uh, the Apostle Peter wrote a whole letter in which the point of that letter is that our response to suffering should be holiness. That we're to be holy. And so if you see in chapter 4, verse 3, what Paul wrote there. Chapter 4, verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, your holiness, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And he goes on and he teaches on sexual morality and being pure. And then he goes on and continues instruction and love for one another. And Paul instructs them on what it looks like to live in view of, of outsiders, of unbelievers. And what it looks like to live in view in the view of unbelievers is to live a quiet life and to be an example of good work ethic. Also, Paul gave them clarification, informing them and in comforting them to give them understanding that those brothers and sisters in Christ who had died, that they will not miss Christ's second coming. That they will not be lost. Well, he comforts them in telling them that there will be a resurrection of those who died believing in Christ. You know, we wonder, how do they not know such a, a basic doctrine about the resurrection of believers? But uh, again, Paul's time there in teaching and discipling this young church was cut short. Uh, maybe he didn't have the time to develop all the areas of doctrine that he wanted to. And so misconceptions grew, and there was some innocent ignorance there. And so he wrote them, and in writing them about this, he brought great comfort to them. I... I well, before I say that, <laughs> I should explain myself a little better. I was going to say, I love preaching 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18 at funerals of believers. Now, a funeral of a believer is, is, is both heart-aching for us, and someone we love dies, and yet this is a time of rejoicing for us, and knowing the truth of, of where they are and, and their hope in the Lord, and, and that we can rejoice in the gospel but I love preaching 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18 at funerals. Because it brings such comfort. And even if it's not my text that I'm in, I can't help referring to it because it's so good. And Paul says comfort 
one another with these words. And, and so I think it's good to refer to it and talk about it at that time. When a loved one dies believing in Christ, what great hope, what great joy, what great comfort there is in knowing not only will the dead in Christ rise from the grave, not only will the church be all gathered together, caught up together in the air, but will be caught up together to be with Christ. And the great hope is that we will be with Christ forever. That's the great hope that Paul offers them, the great comfort that's their being with Christ. What greater thing is there to look forward to? What greater joy is there than to know that forever we will be with Christ? What greater news is there? None. There's no greater joy, no greater happiness, no greater gift that we can have than to know we have eternity with our Savior and Lord. Because there's nothing greater than our Savior and Lord. There's nothing more glorious, nothing more beautiful, nothing more attractive than the Lord Jesus Christ. That no matter what we go through in this life, no matter what it is, it doesn't compare to knowing Christ and being with him forever. So much so that the believer would gear his or her entire life towards this hope. And so the true believer does. A glorious hope we have in Christ's return, in Christ's appearing for his church. And you know, even as we say that and as we go over it when we, we hit on that passage, that's something the unbeliever can't understand. They don't get why there's such joy for us and that we're going to be in heaven. Because to them, it's about streets paved with gold and pearly white gates and, you know, beautiful stones and things that are nice and beautiful. Don't get me wrong. But the great hope is being with Christ. The great joy is Christ. And the unbeliever can't understand that. This is a comfort for believers, for those who, who the glory of Christ has been illuminated in the heart of one who God has drawn to himself. This is what God has revealed in someone. So this is a hope and a comfort for you and I who are trusting in Christ. You know, that, that, that's why we can't Dear church with programs that are attractive and, and, and what we preach in a way that's so, you know, that's, that it's entertaining and, and attractive to the unbelieving world and that we, we try to make things that draw people in because, one, that's not really what church is about. And two, we're attracting them to those things, not attracting them to Christ. It, it may question them, do we really believe Christ is all-glorious and attractive in of himself? That we preach Christ, and that's what we want to bring people into. We want them to see that it's glorious, the hope that we have, that we're going to spend eternity with Christ. We don't want them to come because the music sounds nice. It's nice that the music sounds nice, don't get me wrong. But we want them to come because of Christ. Look to Christ, look how great he is. And all we can do is proclaim Christ, proclaim the word, and let God do the work of opening up their eyes to see how glorious and how beautiful and how wonderful he is, that they would rejoice in the hope and have comfort in the promise that if they trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, they will have eternity with him. That's the great hope that Paul offers. How good is that? How great is that? And all that Paul gives and goes on about what's coming, the future. 
What do they live in light of? So again, in any way, are, are we like this church, this young church? We here, North Valley Baptist Church, North Valley is a, relatively speaking, a young church, not even 20 years old. Now, that doesn't really compare to when Paul was writing this letter to the Thessalonians. Writing this letter maybe not even a year or maybe just a little over a year from the time of the first converts there in the city. It was quite the young church that he was writing to. And yet their faith was undeniable. The fact that God had done a work among them was undeniable. And a part of that undeniability was the fact that they faced opposition and stood up under it. Truth be told, if we're going to stand for the truth, if we're going to stand known for our faith, for biblical principles, for the exclusive gospel, which we proclaim wherever we go, if that's the case, we should know we're going to face opposition. As the Thessalonians, as they received the word of God, they received it with much affliction. And Paul tells them that in that way, they were imitators of Christ. If we suffer for the truth, if we suffer for righteousness, it shouldn't be a shock to us. God purposes in the suffering of his people. We see in this letter that suffering is part of God's plan for his people. Again, we already read chapter 3, verse 4. And Paul says, For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. And we see this affliction is the very thing that caused Paul to worry about them and send Timothy to them. And so just think, Paul, as he expresses his love for this church, his heart for this church, as he has concern for this church, and then he gets good news, the relief of that concern, that they're still walking in the Lord, they're still people known for their faith. Oh, Paul must have loved hearing that. In this letter, we see the heart of Paul in pastoring this church and loving this church. Again, we see at the beginning of this letter that Paul prayed for the church and gave God thanks for the work he had done among them. Paul also prayed that he would be able to make it back to them, to see the believers there in Thessalonica. And we'll read of Paul praying that God would continue his work in them. Apparently, too, there were those there in the city that were trying to destroy the faith of those believers by discrediting Paul, since Paul was the one who first brought the gospel to them. And so in this letter, we'll also see Paul defend his ministry there in the city of Thessalonica. And as Paul encourages the Thessalonians, Paul wanted them to pursue a life that was unlike the unbelievers. Not like the unbelievers who did not have a true hope. The believer that does not live... Or excuse me, the believer... Yeah, I said that right. The believer who does not live in darkness. That the day of the Lord, the day of wrath, would come upon them suddenly and surprise them. Instead, the believer has not been destined for wrath 
has been given the guarantee of hope of being with Christ forever. And so instead of living a life that is unaware or asleep, they should live a life with awareness and be alert, knowing that the wrath of God is coming on the world and the world will be taken unaware. So they're to live in light of this, to live encouraging one another and building each other up. And so Paul, again, he addresses moral behavior and moral attitudes, and he addresses principles and concerning the spiritual gifts. So again, are we like this church? Are we a church that is known for our faith? Are we a church where God is doing a work in us? Is the gospel going forth from here, everywhere we go, because we carry it and we spread it where we go? Are we a church like this, able to stand under persecution, and though we may suffer, we continue to grow in the Lord? Are we a church with future hope in Jesus Christ? that is such that we live in light of that future hope and it sets us apart from the unbelieving world. Are we a church that recognizes we still need to grow? There are areas that we fall short in. There are areas as individuals and areas that we have as a whole. And again, in this letter, Paul addresses areas where they needed to grow. And so therefore, in this letter, the church had to receive Paul's words. They had to be able to listen and hear what he had to say and see the truth in what he had to say and be willing to repent. Are we able to do that? Are we able to look and see the areas where we need to grow, hear the words of Scripture, compare our lives to Scripture, even to 1 Thessalonians? Seeing if this tells us where we are falling short, and need to repent? Can we hear the words of our brothers and sisters in Christ that come alongside of us, be willing to take in what they say and consider it, and therefore recognize areas where we truly need to grow? Are we, are we able to do that? If we're not, uh, we risk a lot. We risk arrogant hypocrisy. Uh, we risk stunting our growth in the Lord. Uh, we risk living out in the power of the gospel and God's word. We, we risk... They risk not being a church like the Thessalonians, who again were known for their faith. No one had to tell the surrounding area about the faith of the Thessalonians. They knew. It was already known. This was a church that honored God in all that they did. Are we a church that's going to seek to honor God in all that we do? That our hope is not in the things of the here and now. We have a future hope. We know what's coming for this world. We live in light of it. We know what God has granted us through Jesus Christ. We live in light of it. We are grateful and we are growing. I hope that we can ask that question as we're going through First Thessalonians. That we can see, are we a church like this? And how, how do we become a church like this? How do we grow in the Lord? How do we continue to walk in Him and be known for our faith? Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of North Valley Baptist Church. For the complete sermon archive and more information about the church, please go to visitnvbc.com.